does work make you happy? It may not be all unicorns and rainbows every day, but who doesn't want to be happier at work? So today's guest has dedicated her life to bringing more joy into the workplace and starting to think about this concept of a greenhouse at work. And I don't mean a literal greenhouse. <laughs> Welcome to Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, and I'm with our producer, Rebecca Charbowski. Hi, Chris. You're talking about Jen Lim, and Jen has spent years understanding how to create happier, more successful workplaces. She's the founder and author of Beyond Happiness. She's the CEO of Delivering Happiness, which is a company she founded with Tony Shea, the late CEO of Zappos. Thanks, Rebecca. And so stick around after we talk to Jen, because I'll be joined by Sherry Johnson, who's a director of global design at Steelcase, and she's going to help us understand how design can help us create happier places at work. And we want to ask our audience if they would rate and review this podcast. Not only will it make us happy, but it's going to help others to find it. So Jen Lim, welcome, and thanks for joining us at Work Better. Hey, Chris. So good to be here. Thank you. Jen, I discovered you when I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, How to Build a Happy Life, that The Atlantic does. I heard you talking to Arthur Brooks about when you started working with Tony Shea and delivering happiness. And in case our listeners don't know your background, I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about delivering happiness and how you got started on that. Yeah, so we'll hit rewind a little bit. That was back in 2010. Uh, so Tony and I launched this book called Delivering Happiness. And that was after me probably consulting at Zappos.com for about eight, nine years. So mm -hmm. we launched this book, uh, just thought it'd be one of the things to check off the list of things to do. And it turned out to do a bit better than that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and just realized there was a demand for happiness, you know, in the world and specifically in the workplaces, because that's what the, you know, Zappos was all about. So that's what pretty much said to us that we need to do something a bit more. And that's when we created and co-founded the company called Delivering Happiness. Um, since then, I've been running that as a what we call ourselves our culture coach salting. It's a mouthful, I know, but <laughs> <laughs> basically helping organizations, uh, you know, businesses, nonprofits, for-profits, governments, hospitals, etc., help figure out how to create an environment where they have sustainably happy employees so their customers will be happier and they'll have a more sustainable organization. At the same time, most importantly, creating more meaningful lives. You know, one of the things that struck me at the time when I first learned of that work was, what does shoes have to do with delivering happiness? Other than, you know, yeah. I like shoes and bad shoes are unhappy, but what was that connection? <laughs> Yeah, uh, it does seem a little bit far-fetched. Um, some people do find their happiness in shoes, but a lot of people don't. So <laughs> the, the connection came when uh, essentially Tony and I started geeking out on the academics behind happiness. So there was an actual body of science of happiness, positive psychology, largely led by Marty Seligman. And it was just like this new, what? Like, I can't believe people have been researching this and trying to understand it from a scientific point of view. Mm -hmm. So these questions, like these existential questions we were having about like, what is this all for? Why are we trying to build businesses? It was really because of that geeky curiosity to understand, oh, this exists and how might we apply it to the workplace? And that's when Zappos became a Petri dish. And then fast forward, mm -hmm. that's when 
and we kind of saw the correlation in really cool ways of how profit doesn't necessarily need to be driven without people involved. It actually can go hand in hand, and that's kind of the genesis of it all. So when I first heard you, you had just introduced your book, Beyond Happiness. And, you know, the first thing I thought is, what's beyond happiness? You know, like I thought happiness is the penultimate goal, you know, so I was really intrigued with that. So like, what was it that you saw that was missing that you wanted to tackle? Yeah, so that, you know, after 10 years of doing Delivering Happiness and 2020 was when I was supposed to start writing this book. And it wasn't called Beyond Happiness at that time. Mm. Uh, So I was ready to just share all these great stories of like how this can be done. And, you know, like I had this nice, tidy outline. And then 2020 hit, right? Like the world got 2020. Mm -hmm. And so every time some news, you know, news bite, some sound bite, something hit the media in a way that changed our lives forever from the pandemic, social unrest, you know, climate change, et cetera. Yep. Then I knew there was something more that I was missing. Like that, this book I was supposed to write was so small in my head, not worth it. Mm. So I really wanted to go, yeah, without knowing it, and that Beyond Peace didn't come to the very end when I had to come up with the title. It came from this place where, yeah, we can talk about happiness. And for us, it's not about rainbows and unicorns. It's about, you know, Grounded, scientific happiness of purpose, connectedness, progress, uh, autonomy, you know, things that we know increase our happiness. But it didn't feel like enough, especially what we went through as a world global society. So what I wanted to do was go beyond in the sense, hey, you know what, let's just make it clear. It's not about chasing those highs or reaching those highs. It's about the lows Mm. as well. And truly acknowledging, identify, if not embracing those lows that teach us as much of our happiness as our highs do, if not more, if we choose to embrace that and learn from it. And I think especially in the last three years of what we went through, I just feel like this is the time to actually get real with that, to embody not just happiness, but, you know, fulfillment in a more meaningful way, especially at the workplace, but of course, how it exudes into our life. Yeah. You know, one of the reviews that I read about your book, I really liked was this person said, if you think personal happiness and professional success are mutually exclusive, Beyond Happiness is essential reading for people who want to find purpose in their work. Mm. That really intrigued me because, you know, I feel like a lot these days, people are asking a lot of really big, important questions about their work and rethinking their priorities. I mean, going through something as traumatic as a pandemic will will kind of have you do that, you know, like start rethinking your life a little bit. So in some respects, I feel like getting the right relationship with our work is really important. You know, one of the things that you said that I thought was really interesting was this idea of connecting your purpose is like the most sustainable form of happiness. Like an organization mission statement it's not enough. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, like that relationship between organizations' mission and purpose and work and how that's going to help us be happy. Yeah. So <laughs> why well, I believe mission statements are a little bit like archaic is that usually it's like about the company in itself. But I think what purpose does is it broadens the conversation to something of a higher level. And not just from an organizational standpoint, it's purpose beyond making money. But it also, especially right now, is deep diving into the personal purpose as well and the interconnection of that, 
when someone walks into, well, now it could be, you know, remote and hybrid, but like into their workplace, Mm -hmm. they still have that sense of purpose. So how might that align with that of the organizational purpose? And why I bring that up is because, again, we go always back to the science. So what we now know is like the most sustainable form of happiness, knowing there's different types, there's pleasure and there's senses of passion and flow, but the most sustainable form is having that sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, simply being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. And so that, I think that's what has really turned, uh, you know, as the silver lining of what happened in the last few years is that people are acknowledging that purpose has a really distinct place in the workplace. Great Place to Work just shared very recently that those that have a sense of purpose at work are three times more likely to stay Mm. and be loyal and recommend to their friends. You know, those things that we've all known to be true but are now more important than ever. Because, like you said, we had a lot of time to think. And some people chose to reflect and integrate their, you know, newfound sense of why am I here? into their workplace and everyday lives. So that's why I keep on prioritizing purpose in a meaningful way. Yeah, I hadn't heard that before, that people who feel a sense of purpose are more likely to stay. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for a lot of us, whether you're in a leadership role in an organization or whatever your role is, like how can we help ourselves and help other people feel that connection with the purpose? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I wonder about, and I'd love to get your take on this one, because you mentioned hybrid work a minute ago. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you're seeing with your clients or your own experience about hybrid work and how does that impact our ability to feel that sense of purpose and connectedness you mentioned before, control? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when we think about hybrid remote work now, it's just kind of like the future of work. We've been talking about this for so long. Mm -hmm. And then with the pandemic, it's like, nope, it's here. (laughs) We're living the future now. So it's now even more important than ever because of this, you know, new way we work um, physically, virtually to have those senses of purpose and values to be instilled in a workplace, to have meaningful connections that can still be had differently, but can be done as we've been doing with a lot of remote companies that we've been working with. Mm -hmm. And why it's more important now is because we have this, you know, a bit more separation of physical space. Well, once we step out of our office, we had to cook dinner for the kids, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. This work-life integration of time and space means that we have a greater need to have a grounding. Mm -hmm. And this grounding can come organizationally in a team with your colleagues to have a shared sense of purpose and shared sense of values to remind how it is that we want to be doing our work away, you know, quote unquote, from each other. So that's why these organizations out there that did have that before the pandemic, BC, before COVID, (laughs) is still maintaining that because they still have that shared sense of like, oh, these are our values and this is our higher purpose. But more importantly, I think now people are actually being more vocal about their own purpose and values. And that's when you see really great alignment and therefore growth um, during these hard times. So Jen, in your work, you developed this framework or this model rather, this greenhouse model to talk about how we can go about establishing, clarifying our purpose and I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. In particular, like some of the 
attributes, if you will, of the greenhouse? Like, how does that work? Yes, uh, sure. Like, this is part of the sort of evolution because before we were about, you know, delivering happiness and it was a happiness model. And greenhouse model came about when I started working on this book because just looking across the board, there was still a perception about happiness. You know, there's still people that say, I don't really think happiness and anything should be tied to my workplace. And that's fine and good. There's a lot of always naysayers and I'm not here to like twist anyone's arm. But I evolved it to the greenhouse model because there really isn't anyone out there that you can talk to that would say, I don't want to grow. And that sense of growth can be from any age, you know, whether you're a millennial, Gen Z are coming out, you want to grow, you want to learn, or you're on the other end, like baby boomer, Gen Z or Gen X or sorry, mm-hmm. where they want to grow personally too, not just professionally because they've reached a certain point. So I adapted it to the greenhouse model because in that sense, everyone in an organization can get aligned and can rally around that sense of, yes, how can we grow? Number one, first, personally. Number two, as a team. Number three, as an organization. And therefore, impacting our ecosystem of customers, partners, vendors, and now more than ever, you know, society and the planet um, more directly. So that's why I evolved at the greenhouse. And the whole backstory to that is like Tony and I used to talk about being a good leader is really growing and creating the conditions so that others can grow in a greenhouse. And that was super important still. But what I realized during writing this book is that we were missing a big piece, which is we tend to try to grow other greenhouses, but we forget our own. So pieces, the piece is like we need to tend to our own greenhouse as we grow others. Right. It's like the whole you know oxygen metaphor in the plane. Like we all felt that we all forgot it too, because maybe, you know, we didn't fly for three years, but now now we're coming back a little bit uh, into flight. It's just um, having that more of a growth mentality has really helped this model in this time and place so that we can get, get aligned again. Yeah, I would just add for our listeners, I tend to be very visual. I love listening to what Jen is saying. I actually found the book really helpful to be able to actually look at the diagrams. Mm. You've got great diagrams, Jen. So, I, you know, I would just say to listeners, <laughs> get the book because I think the greenhouse model is a lot easier to understand when you can kind of look at it. At least that was kind of how I felt. But I would like you to talk a little bit more with people about those kind of three attributes that you mentioned kind of quickly before this notion of control mm. and progress, I think is a really interesting one too, as well as connectedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is part of the greenhouse model in the sense that these are happiness levers that we've been able to apply uh, over the years in in workplaces. So one of the biggest things we lost during this time was a sense of control. And that's Mm -hmm. number one, sense of autonomy, sense of control, a feeling like, hey, I'm trusted by others, my peers, my boss, because I know, um, you know, I know what I'm here for and what my role and responsibilities are. So we lost that immediately, right? at the beginning of 2020. So now that's a huge part of getting people to feel they have that sense of autonomy to make their own decisions and be trusted for it. The second one is progress. And this one is huge too, because we lost that. That's coming down to, even if we have this seemingly unachievable job or role or project, it's Mm -hmm. so important to celebrate the milestones along the way, breaking it up in, you know, whatever makes sense to that project Mm -hmm. or team and take that time to celebrate because yeah. otherwise it just seems like we're, you know, that good old hamster in the wheel and having this never-ending goal to achieve. 
The third thing, and this one is also huge, especially given our conversation about hybrid work, is connectedness. And that has been broken up. You know, mm-hmm. we know that loneliness is at a height, you know, in, in the world's workplace, according to, to Gallup. And so now we need to be more creative about how, how we can create those meaningful connections. And that's why I always harp on purpose and values because when you have that and instill that in the system in your meetings you know in the way you work you're no longer just talking about hey what are you binging on Netflix or what's your happy hour drink you know those things are important Mm -hmm. pleasure forms happiness very important but when you get to that level of speaking about purpose and values all of a sudden your conversations are more meaningful you know your colleagues in a way that maybe even their friends might not know them so that's how we develop meaningful connections by opening up the conversations to what is fundamentally most important to us uh, in the core of who we are. You know, when, when we think about purpose at work, I feel like that's really important. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, there's a lot of pressure on leaders of organizations to deliver like financial results. Yeah, I was reading something coming out of Davos that that's what the CEOs are talking about is results, results. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious, like, do you feel like there's a, a tension there between really trying to live your purpose as a business organization and also trying to deliver business results? Well, you know what the cool thing about this is that this the short answer is no, <laughs> if we look at the data. And... And that's the interesting thing. So the data, th- the part of it, so the ROI aspect of the return on investment of, you know, basically investing in your people has been evident since the last 10, 15 years. They've done, you know, the research on companies that essentially double down on their people, mm-hmm. like those that are on the great place to work list or, you know, Fortune's best companies to work for or Glassdoor. Those have actually outperformed consistently financially, mm. the outperformed the S&P 500 even in economic downturns. So we know the data is there. There is definitely a gap in those that want to implement it and actually believe in it. So that's where the tension comes in, but at least the data is on our side. But when we can actually show leaders how to measure, then they'll start getting it. Mm -hmm. Because yes, they want results. Part of the results is retention. How many millions of dollars are you losing every time a you lose someone, you know, lose a team, lose, you know, functions within your company. That adds up very quickly, especially right now, given the climate of uncertainty. So when we get to being able to show how to measure, measure what matters, then the light goes on as to, okay, this is a part of our results. And it's making people more productive and engaged. And people are are more fulfilled and happy. So why wouldn't we do this? Yeah, I saw something that really struck me in your book that people with a sense of belonging perform significantly better than those without, which I personally really found relevant because we've been thinking a lot about this whole idea of how do you create a sense of belonging at work and the idea that that's helping people in their performance, like that really struck me. And I'm just curious from your perspective, like, did that surprise you or <laughs> when you found that? Uh, not, yes and no in some ways. Um, but I think if anything, the biggest 
surprise was how much it got spotlighted in the last few years of what belongings value is in the workplace. Because if we zoom out for just a moment, like there's not a thing in thinking about what happened with the pandemic. If we think about what we really want as human beings and one of the bottom lines, I think, is one of the core things is just we really want to be heard and understood. Sure. And if we can bring that into the workplace, that is really like cutting across all these conversations around DEI, DEIB, all these things of just like, how do we actually create these where there's this equanimity across people? And so that sense of belonging is it's not a nice to have anymore. People are actually demanding this sense. Otherwise, they'll go somewhere else. Equally, we're seeing layoffs. On the other side, we're seeing um, people that are rage applying, you know, like saying, I, I deserve more. I'm quiet quitting because I deserve more. So how do we get this to a healthier conversation, I think, is, is that sense of creating an environment of belonging, creating an environment of psychological safety. You know, whatever we share here, we're all human beings. I'm a boss. I'm a human being. My employees, they're all human beings. Like, let's just create a new social contract. The rules are no longer here. We have to create new relationships, new boundaries, new rules in, in how we work. You know, I, I love the simple solutions like democratizing meetings. Use a Google Doc so that the most mm-hmm. interest, you know, introverted person will have something to say. And just like little simple techniques and tactics to create the everyday sense like, hey, we all have a voice here. And I, as a leader, will attentively listen and let you know whether it can be done or not. But at least we're going to do this together. Yeah. So I have to confess a little bit. One of the things you talk about in terms of bringing your authentic self to work, like I'm a bit of a authentic self skeptic <laughs> because I'm always like, love it. I'm, I'm not sure you really want to know my authentic self. And in fact, I'm not always sure my husband wants to know my authentic self. Now I really want to know your authentic self. <laughs> and he's stuck with me. But you use this exercise. It's called the happiness heartbeat as mm-hmm. a way for people to kind of start thinking about that? Um, it, the happiness heartbeats is definitely part authenticity, but also part values, like under, identifying your values. Okay. So it's a combination of that. And, and now because we've all gone through, you know, everyone has their own 2020 stories and beyond of their highs, but also lows. And now it's an also, that exercise is really effective for, for recognizing your own resilience and grit. So yeah. if... I mean, I could share really quickly how, how do you go about it if, if, if we have time. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, so essentially, like, you're the you know, star of your own show, uh, protagonist of your own movie kind of thing. Just reflect on your own life and identify, pick out a few highs, a few lows in your work, in your life that really resonate with you still today. And when you do this exercise, and it's step-by-step in the book, but basically by identifying these moments, you are able to pull out themes. You're all able to pull out things, therefore values that are that were there or not there. So for example, you know, I, I summoned in Kilimanjaro, that was a high. I got laid off, 9-11, I lost my dad, those were lows. Mm-hmm. And what I saw in those was like, oh, these values of freedom, authenticity, Freedom, uh, I'm sorry, values of uh, having meaningful relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and those just like really rang s- strong and true. So I started understanding, hey, if I can live by these values for my hard, hard, big decisions and my day-to-day decisions, at least I know I'm living according to how I want to show up in the world. Mm-hmm. So this 
exercise we've been using for 12 years, but in the last few years, people have been really appreciating it because they have been wanting to revisit what makes me feel full, what makes me feel happy. And what's been really cool about it is when we can identify those low moments and actually see what we were feeling, what we did to get to the next high, then it becomes the agency within ourself to know we can do it again. It's not the same like reading inspirational books or quotes or motivational, you know, speeches or listening to TED. It's like you're actually applying it to yourself because you know you've been there before. Mm -hmm. So that's where we've seen this exercise become really handy of, yeah, recognizing what your authentic values are, how you want to live and how you're going to get over whatever might be the lowest low that you might have endured in the last few years. I think it was Arthur Brooks I was listening to uh, after listening to you where uh, he was talking about this idea of low that you kind of mentioned that it's like you have to have that kind of contrast to recognize the high sometimes. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, the weekend is great because you had a work week and there's that contrast between the two. Like vacations are great because, you know, you've been working hard and then like you have almost that contrast between the two, right? Totally. And I think, you know, some people might cast it off as something like cliche of uh, like, you can't feel the highs until you feel the lows, that depth and the height of it all. But it really is, if you do experience and embrace both sides of it, you actually viscerally feel that difference um, of being able to, you know, take that comparison and actually add it to what it could lead into your, you know, sense of gratitude. Yeah, <laughs> being able to get through that to the next high. Hey, before I let you go, Jen, I, I just want to circle back to something that you talked about before, which is ROI, which a lot of people don't think about ROI and happiness in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. You talk about something called a ripple of impact. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. How measuring this is is an interesting concept. Yeah, so... I call it the double ROI in the book and essentially because like, you know, what I rattled off earlier in terms of the stats of the return on investment financially when you double down your people on the second side of the same coin is that if you have the measurement for numbers and financials in place and you add that layer of purpose when you have truly embedded operationalized purpose and connected that to your individual people, that's when you have the second ROI of that ripple of impact. And what that means is that every single individual within your organization, and I can give you an example, but basically that because they're living their purpose, they're actually rippling out that impact to the team Mm -hmm. in a positive way, and therefore the organization, and therefore their customers or their patients or the citizens of the city, that kind of thing of whoever they touch in their ecosystem or community. And I love talking about, as an example, uh, Northwell Health, which is a, um, mm. if you're familiar with, uh, healthcare system in New York. They've been a client of ours like way before COVID. And if you can imagine, it was one of the most challenging workplaces during this time of COVID was, was the hospital. Like no sense of control, no sense of progress, no idea what the hell is going on. Right. And yet, because they did the work and they instilled purpose and values across, you know, from the custodian to the doctors and nurses. They were that much more aligned to be able to not just realize like, hey, we're going to get through this, but that 
like ripple of impact being able to really serve their patients, their local communities just came through naturally because they were already aligned to do that. So if you're imagining that in one of the most unpredictable workplaces and conditions, imagine what we can do when we have a bit more, you know, sense of control and predictability and what we're doing now as we're sort of getting a little bit more hope every day that we're in the tunnel. That is a great story. Thank you for sharing that with us because I do really think this idea of being able to have the connection between our happiness and business success, that those two ideas are not mutually exclusive, I think is a really important message Mm. for organizations that, you know, like our work isn't necessarily, it's not a bad thing. You know, it it can be a good thing for the world and for our communities and for ourselves. And, you know, I think that's a really important thing for us to think about, like how we, how we do that. Yeah. I have really enjoyed talking to you about this, and uh, I'm sure our listeners are really interested in hearing more about some of your ideas. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I knew when I was talking to Jen that I really wanted to reach out to my colleague, Sherry Johnson, who's the Director of Global Design at Steelcase. Sherry just recently completed a huge project to rethink how leaders, um, what their spaces are like at work, given, you know, the new demands on leaders today. So first of all, thanks for joining me to talk about this, Sherry. I'm, I'm excited that you're here. Thanks, Chris. I too really enjoyed what Jen said about Greenhouse and her analogy there, because it's a place. Yeah. And that's easy spot for designers to think about how place encourages and supports the types of behaviors that, uh, we want. And I think it's a really interesting time right now, given how highly structured our lives have all become, not just leaders, Mm -hmm. part of it because we're on video so much and we've lost the social graces of the before and after the meeting, those kind of constructs of how was your day or how was your weekend that we would normally do. Or at the end of the meeting, we'd step aside with an employee to maybe talk about Uh, more coaching related to what our next steps are. We've lost all of that. And I think the greenhouse or the workplace or the leader commons place helps support those types of things. Those are human interactions that (laughs) are (laughs) important. It feels like the way that people are meeting in general, whether they're in a leadership role or not, like that's not making anybody happy, (laughs) you know, at, at work because we're just cramming so much in. But when you did the the work for this space, the the Leader Commons is the name of the space that is new. You know, you thought about that, like you intentionally designed ways for these kind of transitions between meetings that are maybe a little bit more human. Yeah. So what we found out is, you know, an executive's calendar is highly full and highly structured, but the transition moments and the context changes between when someone's doing individual focus or when they're in a meeting are really important to allow a point a, a point for them to take a moment to either recenter themselves. So how you mm-hmm. place those collaborative spaces, those enclosed meeting spaces, the areas where you allow them to focus and then those transition moments and actually taking those circulation paths or those, the things that we think are, you know, just common paths of travel and actually 
putting little asides on them, pulling little key, little, we have communication kiosks where the executives share stuff about themselves. It, it's where you can pull over and have these interactions which are enriching for you as an individual to connect with someone on an individual, and it's also meaningful to the individual that you're working with. And I think that metaphor of the greenhouse again, and, and how are you nourishing and feeding both individuals, the employee and the leader, that right. space plays a really critical role in supporting those types of interactions. And I think sort of seeing more importance related to that, and that's what I really appreciate about what Jen's doing, is she's saying, don't forget about this part that needs tending to also. Yeah, I also really was struck by her, what she had to say in terms of greenhouses that, you know, as leaders, our job being to, you know, really help create conditions so others can grow, but that you also have to make sure that you're growing too as a leader and that you're also kind of tending to yourself in that process. And I think, you know, you have some really good insights around how do you kind of create those those spaces for leaders that help them kind of reflect who they are, they're bring their authentic selves to work, right? Yeah, so as as our world is changing, we think about professional self, this is my persona, this is my role within the organization, then there's your individual self. And the things that we discovered through this process of working with our teams is, you know, we have someone who has great musical talents mm -hmm. and will go and play guitar for a little while during the day. Well, wh why, why hide that? Bring that out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or someone's right. actually, you know, has has uh, some llamas, right? And and she's yeah. selling yarn, and we're like, hey, those are all important elements of who you are. So if you, as a leader, express those, that allows other individuals to also say it's okay outside of my how I identify myself and my professional role here in the organization. Mm -hmm. I have other things that connect us on a human level that allows for us understanding, um, aligning our shared mind and shared purpose and understanding the needs and empathizing with one another. Yeah, I, I think it's cool that the way you guys have approached the physical cues in space that allow us to behave you know, differently than maybe we thought about in the past and to be able to be more of ourselves when we come into work, which I would hope would help us all build more happiness at work. So I know I could talk to you forever about this, Sherry, but but thanks for some reflections on some of the things that Jen had to say. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me join, Chris. Thanks for being here with us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate it or review it so more people can find it. And visit us at steelcase.com slash research to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research, insights, and design ideas delivered to your inbox. So what's up for next week, Rebecca? Next week, we're gonna talk with Marcus Collins. Marcus is one of those people who's lived like seven careers in one life. Mm -hmm. He's worked with Beyonce, Apple, and now he's head of strategy at Wyden Kennedy in New York. He also teaches at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Like, what, what am I doing? I know. It's amazing. <laughs> He's also adding author to his resume with a new book called For the Culture. And Marcus talks about how culture is the biggest cheat code when it comes to influencing human behavior. And he's got stories from everything, from pop and tech, and all of that's going to change the way you see culture in the workplace, I think. So I hope you join us. Thanks again for being here, and we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better.
Many thanks to everyone who helps make Work Better Podcasts possible. Our creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison, editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios, technical support by Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez, and our digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks.